0: So, for those of us who are staying up, um, go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, listen, if you're, if you're a note taker and you have a copy of the notes that I made for today, um, just try your best to keep up with me. We've got a lot of ground to cover and we're going to go through quick, okay? Um, I, somebody else told me, you can always come back on YouTube or on the website and watch the video over again if you, if you miss any of the notes, so feel free to do that. So, this is... The story of of Jesus feeding the 5,000, again, a well-known story, but it's also the one of him walking on water. And so we've got a lot going on in Matthew chapter 14. Um, From Matthew 14 onward, we're going to see the real-life application of these parables that Jesus talked about in chapter 13, okay? Sorry, my OCD is canon. in. So the main point of what I want to talk to you about today is how we view Jesus is going to affect how we worship. How you view Jesus is going to affect how you worship, if you worship, and if your worship is acceptable to him. So I want to ask you these questions as we go. How do you view Jesus? What does your worship say about Jesus? If somebody was to know Jesus just through your worship, what would that look like? Who would they think that he is? And then maybe lastly, how should we worship Jesus? There's a lot of churches around America that worship Jesus in a lot of different ways. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's the story with that, right? So, most of the kids are gone, so everyone in this room will probably understand what I'm talking about. Before cell phones, to take a picture, we had something called a camera, right? And on the camera, if you are familiar with that instrument, there was something on it that you looked, There's a teeny little window that you would look through to see what it is that you wanted to take a picture of. You didn't get to look at a screen. You had to look through a tiny little window. Do you guys remember what the window was called? It was called a viewfinder, right? Am I right? If I'm not, then that's what it is for today's sermon, okay? So this viewfinder, this, this little thing, and, and what we would actually have to do also, most of you remember this too, is there was actually something called film inside the camera. And so you didn't get instant pictures that you could then upload to Snapchat or whatever it is that you do. Uh, we, we actually had to take those in and then get them developed as this development process. and then we'd get the photos back, and you'd often find out if your viewfinder or if your picture was worthwhile. But the fact of the matter is it's that viewfinder that then determines the picture that we have. Does this make sense? And that's what we would use the viewfinder for. So as we look at today's text, I want to look at the view of Jesus from the path, the view of Jesus from the rocks and thorns, the view of Jesus from the field, Because I think we have all four types of those views here today, and I want to make sure that our picture of Jesus is correct because how we view Jesus is going to affect the way that we worship, okay? But before we jump into God's Word, please let's pray. O Lord, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we give thanks to you as our Good Shepherd. You are the most faithful keeper of our souls. We praise your tender care for us as you bring glad tidings of good things both for now and for eternity. We praise you for the goodness we have seen of you in this book of Matthew, and with what earnest care you have moved about in pursuit of the conversion of sinners, to bring them as well as us to repentance by contrite hearts while caring for their physical needs, you bring them to the healing of spiritual forgiveness as well. So to you, Jesus, Master of all things, we bring our thirsting hearts. Lead us to your streams of saving grace, that we might dedicate our hearts and minds to delight in your word found in Matthew 14. Open our ears, direct our eyes, that we might focus our view on you, both now and forever. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, side note, totally unrelated. But I'm going to say it anyway. If you um, want to pray better, read good theologians who pray. Learn from them. I'm not saying there's anything special about my prayer. In fact, it's because of reading other theologians and then adapting what they've said. Um, anyway. Side note, freebie, let's move on. Uh, view from the path, Okay. A view from the path is going to be in Matthew 13, 53 through 58, as well as Matthew 14, 1 through 12. So we've got a lot of text. Let's jump in there. Matthew 13, 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, right? right, So he's just got done with all that. He went away from there, coming to his own hometown. He taught them in their synagogue, their, their church area there, okay? And so this was where he grew up. People knew him. People knew his family. And as we're going to see, that is exactly the problem. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and all these mighty works? They were like, We know this guy. He's Mary's son, Joseph's son, right? Air quotes. They all knew that virgins didn't give birth, and so they were all suspicious of this as well, right? And so they were like, Who is this guy? Where is he from? Is not this the carpenter's son? You can almost hear their disdain for him, even in how they say that. The carpenter's son, they don't even name him Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did he get these many things, or all these things? And they took offense to him. That's their response to Jesus. Not submission, not understanding, not fellowship, but rather offense. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, if that ain't a sermon for another time, I would be a fool. It's not the sermon for today. So we're going to move on to chapter 12, or chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So now, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So his fame was moving out of his hometown into the rest of these areas. Remember all the works that he had done so far. He had been back and forth. Over the sea there, remember he had healed people, drove out the pigs, so his fame is increasing. People are hearing about him and his miracles. And this is what Herod says. Now again, remember, our view of who Jesus is affects how we interact, how we respond, how we worship him. Herod said, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. Well, wait a minute. Can't be the case, right? But what Herod is going to posit here is the idea of reincarnation or even spiritual indwelling, right? The spirit of John the Baptist might indwell the flesh of of Jesus, or whatever his theology is, we know it's wrong, but uh, he has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, why did he think this way? That's a good question. We'll just keep reading, right? And so Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of this area, not the king, uh, because there's only one king, and that's Jesus, but he fills in that role. Herod had seized John. Bound him and put him in prison. You remember? I think it was in, or I know it was in Matthew eleven verse two, where John's disciples came to Jesus and said, "Who should we expect? You or somebody else?" And so this is way back now. So now we're now we're giving a um, if you if you think about a movie, right? And you think about a movie, and it's like you know three months earlier or whatever, and it fades to black, and then it shows whatever's happening, and it says you know present day. This is what's happening right now. So we're now giving a back to the past view of what has happened and why Herod is saying what he's saying in the currently is what's happening with him in his hometown. Does that make sense? So you have an idea of time frame and how this shakes out. Herod had seized John, bound him, put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Why? Because John had been saying it's not lawful for you to have her. They're committing adultery. They're living with one another. They're in a relationship that is un. Biblical and not okay. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. He was afraid of the people because they held him to be a prophet. So he wanted to kill John the Baptist because he was telling him the truth, and it was offending him, just like Jesus' brothers and sisters and friends were offended at the truth. And, but he wasn't going to do it because he feared the people, right? Now, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. We can only guess what that was like. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. This is a very average thing to do back then, and, and people wouldn't really ask for the whole kingdom or all those kind of things that you think. But prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So as a young lady who was dancing before, which is all kinds of problems with that, it's a whole other sermon about modesty and all that kind of stuff. But then she uses that opportunity to help her mother. They get the head of John the Baptist. So what does it say? The king was sorry because of his oath, but also because of fear. Now, not fear of the people outside, but the people, fear of the people in his own inner circle. He went and had it happen, and he sent John the Baptist, was beheaded in prison. He didn't do it publicly. He did it privately. Like all sin that we do is not normally out there for everybody to see, but instead it's behind closed doors because we think we can get away with it. And his head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, took the body, buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So let's look at this view from the path. The fact of the matter is, is when we have a wrong view of Jesus, we have a wrong view of everything. Is that what that says? Yeah. And so with this view, we're going to receive a picture of caution to those who would scoff. Firstly, then, let's look at his family. And Herod, both. They heard his words. How much is this like our world today? I mean, there is no shortage of Bibles in America. I would guess that many of you have multiple copies at your home. And I know for a fact that if you have a smartphone and you have a Bible app on your phone, you have multiple translations on your phone. And so the fact of the matter is is that very much the Word of God is prevalent in our society today today even more so than it was back then. But the fact of the matter is the first step to having a wrong view or receiving a picture of caution to the scoffer is when you have uh, heard the words of God and don't listen to them. It's exactly what Herod is doing. It's exactly what these people in his family are doing. And not only that, but they also see his works. Now, we may have a different scenario today. Perhaps we don't see the same, you know, healing of the leper, raising of the dead, those kind of things that they saw then. But how much more damned ought they to be then? But in the fact of the matter is true, I'm sure every single one of us has some kind of a personal story, a personal testimony of what God has done in their lives. And if you don't, just ask around. Somebody will share. I know the work that God has done in me. I know that he has saved me from certain things. I know some of you, and I know some of your stories, and I know that you have seen the hand of God at work. And for the country around us, they have too. But instead of having a view of actually recognizing the works that God has done, they turn their back on it. Instead, they try to focus not on the works, but on other things like the results. The other thing that they did was they silenced their conscience. So now we're moving from the crowd to maybe him personally. Was it not Herod's conscience that also told him that what he was doing with his brother's wife was wrong? How many of us in our world today, we silence our consciences? You know, God has given us our consciences so that we might be convicted and turn and therefore repent. I don't think that anyone can actually explain the human conscience outside of creationism. Because personally, I think evolution would take care of the conscience. If it's survival of the fittest, why would I ever feel bad for doing anything that would harm anybody else if it gives me a leg up? It just doesn't make sense. But the fact of the matter is, to have a wrong view of Christ, when we look through the viewfinder and we decide to silence our consciences, we are often getting a wrong view of who Jesus is. Now it's progressive from here. So we can hear his words, we can see his works generally in the world, right? Think about all creation, right? We see his works in creation. We hear his words just generally. It's on billboards as you drive. If you drive to Indiana or whatever, I'm sure you'll see several of them just on that short stretch. But now we're going to move forward from silencing your conscience to also silencing the prophet. See, the fact of the matter is, I get up here every single week, and I say things, and I try to be biblical, and I try to say what I need to say from God's Word to profit you. And I'm not saying I'm a prophet in the strictest sense, but let's substitute this word prophet for preacher. Herod silenced the preacher, John the Baptist. Jesus' family silenced the preacher, Jesus, when he was teaching their synagogues. He was effectively preaching to those folks, right? I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, that's why they call it that. Herod is silencing John. He's telling him, hey, listen, what you're doing is wrong, and where's evidence from God's word, and he silences that too. And in America today, and in churches all over, and it says all the more as we move closer and closer to the end, people are going to want for themselves teachers that are, instead of teaching truth, are going to tell them what they want to hear, because they're going to silence the preaching of the word, and instead puff up for themselves teachers that, that tickle their ears. Please don't be in the business of silencing preachers, especially preachers who seek to preach God's word. And then from there, he moves on to silence the Spirit. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. If you are convicted today that your view might be off, if you're convicted today that you might be doing some of these same things and receiving a picture of caution to the scoffer, then I would beg to you, please stop grieving the Holy Spirit. When you're alone and no one's around and you have more time than you do since and something happens that you should repent of, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Make a short account with Christ. Come to the altar of grace quickly and what happens over time is eventually we silence and we silence and we silence and then what happens is the same thing that happened when Herod meets Jesus and eventually the spirit is silent to us all together and that is the danger because overall what happens is we become scoffers Luke 23, 6-11, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. He learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, so he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But then here it is, verse 9 of Luke 23, 6-11 but he made no answer. Eventually, Herod got down the road long enough where there was nothing left for him. There was no salvation left for Herod. And then it finishes out here. It says, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, speaking of Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, and they mocked him, they arrayed him in splendid clothing, and they sent him back to Pilate. See, the fact of the matter is, is when we have a wrong view of Jesus, we have a wrong view of everything. When you have a wrong view of Jesus, you think sin isn't as bad as what it is. When we have a wrong view of Jesus, we view ourselves as good people who maybe even deserve heaven when we die. When we have a wrong view of Jesus, we have a wrong view of the rest of his word. When we have a wrong view of Jesus, we have a wrong view of the church. We have a wrong view of what Christianity is all about. When we have a wrong view of Jesus, we have a wrong picture of everything. Next, I want to talk to you about a view from the rocks and thorns. You can find that in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus heard this, heard about John the Baptist being killed, right? So you've got to remember that we're... Um, kind of slicing through the time frame. We're going back to Herod remember that he killed and all the story with Herodias and everything. And it says that he, he had, when he heard these things, so now he's, he's catching wind of it, right? Then he was withdrawing from there to a boat, to a desolate place by himself. Jesus was grieving. Jesus loved John. If you remember the Gospels, John was his cousin, his relative. He loved John. And so he's grieving. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him in foot from the towns. Different sermon, but isn't that interesting? When Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist, he grieves because he loves him. When the people heard, they understood that bad things were afoot, so they looked for someone that they could trust and account on, and so they followed Jesus. Again, different sermon. You can use that if you're ever preaching someday. Please do. So they followed him from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the village and to buy food for themselves. I love this. But But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, John, so if you're a note-taker, you can write in the margin of your Bible or whatever, or if you have a study Bible, I'm sure you have a little note that says this. John 6, 5 through 9. By the way, this account and the walking on the water, these accounts are in all four of the Gospels. You can find them. They're in all four of them. Um, I just want to say that uh, in in the account that we're about to read about feeding the 5,000, this was not a miraculous potluck, okay? It's not what this was. Everybody didn't just share all their stuff, and then now we're writing about sharing in the Bible and it's a message on sharing. No, it's not. I mean, I guess it is from the boy's perspective. This is a miracle. Jesus did a miracle. Deal with it. The Bible says it. Okay? John 6, 5 through 9, though, it talks about how Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy food for all these people? And Jesus said these things to test them, it says in in 6. Uh, He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So, back to this text that we're in today. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish, and we know from the other Gospels that it comes from a little boy who brought his lunch to share with people, and that's where the sharing thing comes from, I guess. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves, the two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So they are a conduit of God's blessing to the rest of the people. Right, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Lots of pastors want to tell you that you know that's an illustration of all of Israel and all that kind of stuff, and that's probably true. That's not what we're talking about today. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So it was way more than 5,000. I don't know why we call it feeding the 5,000, because that's all we know about, but it's feeding the more than 5,000. But here's what I want for you to understand with this. View from the rocks and thorns, when we have a selfish view of Jesus, our salvation may be in danger. But here we see a picture of compassion to the weak. So when we have a selfish view of Jesus, our salvation may be in danger, but this is a picture of compassion to the weak. Firstly, then, we see, Oh, okay, good. Firstly, then we see that these disciples reflect Jesus' compassion. Now, here's the thing. The crowds followed Jesus because he healed their sick. The crowds followed Jesus because he fed them. The disciples followed Jesus because they loved him and because they had a false understanding of the kingdom, I believe, and it's getting continuously redirected through all these Gospels and through all this story. But if you remember Who is one of the disciples who is here right now? Judas. He was with him the whole time. In fact, in other places it says that Judas held the money bag, and he was a thief, and he used to steal out of the money bag. And so when these things would happen, can you imagine what Judas was thinking when when he said, you know, where are we going to buy food for all these people? Judas was probably freaking out. He's thinking, there's no way I'm giving you all this money so that you can buy food for these people. But those, those, those people aside, look at what the rest of the disciples said. They, like Jesus, reflected his compassion to these people. They said, this is a desolate place. There's no place for them to eat. We need to send them away so that they can go and find food. Is your picture of Jesus selfish? Do you see Jesus as here to fulfill your needs, or do you see Jesus as a conduit by which you can fulfill the needs of others? Because that's the difference between the multitude and the disciples. But the fact of the matter is, is even if you're in the rocks and thorns, even if you have the cares of the world that are kind of, that you're struggling against, Jesus gives a word of compassion to you, a picture of compassion as he still feeds them, he still heals them. So the second thing that we can base this off of is, are we relying on Jesus' resources? We should be reflecting his compassion and relying on his resources. And if you are one who is kind of stuck in these rocks and these thorns right now, perhaps you're asking the question, how can I do that? I'm glad you asked. The first thing is you can start with what you have. This is what this boy did. I think it's a 12-year-old boy. This small boy. He had five loaves and two fish, which is not much. I don't have a 12-year-old boy. He's 10, but I can tell you that boy can eat. And so I'm guessing five loaves and two fish. And I don't know how we don't know how big. In our mind, when we westernize it, you know, we think of. Wonder Bread, Loaf of Wonder Bread. Maybe you don't think of Wonder Bread because you're healthier than me, but I think of Loaf of Wonder Bread, right? Like, that's probably not what he had. It says barley cakes. So we're talking like, you know, no, not French bread. It's not that big. Five loaves that huge. Oh, this is, and this, and, and there were huge. And there were whales. This miracle is getting smaller and smaller all the time, right? No, we're talking about like cookie size, barley loaves, and just a couple probably smoked fish. You saw the cartoon. It's 100% accurate. But the fact of the matter is, is if we're caught up in the rocks and the thorns, we don't always think of this. We think that we can't do these things. But the fact is, is like this boy, we can start with what we have. And the next thing, and this might be the hardest for you, you can give what you have to Jesus. Now, I understand sometimes this is hard to do. And I'm not a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel guy, and so I'm telling you, if you have to pick, if you have to pick, between paying the electric bill to keep the lights on or giving a tithe to the church. I want, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pay your electric bill and then come see me because you need financial counseling because there's something else going on. And as a church, we want to help you. But the fact of the matter is, is sometimes this is hard to do, but Jesus is a better steward than you are. He just is. This boy knew that. The disciples knew that. You should know that. And so give what you have to Jesus. There's biblical mandates for how to do that. This is not a sermon on giving or anything like that. So get money out of your mind. Think of all the other things. What about your time? What about your family? What about your talents? What about church service and volunteering? Wink, nudge. And then the next thing that they did is they simply obeyed his commands. Remember, here's here's the chain of events. You give them something to eat. It's a command. You do this oh, we've got fish and loaves, bring them to me. Command them to sit down on the grass. Now here, you distribute these among them, and then when we're done, Jesus says, now go gather the baskets. These are very simple commands. I mean, think about how simple this is. Bring it to me. Tell them to sit down. Now give it out. And now pick up what's left. He didn't say, go catch fish and fry up some bread and go to town and sell a donkey. He didn't say all those things. Remember, this is the same Jesus who just a little while ago told them on the Sermon on the Mount, I I think is where this is. I'm getting muddled now. Uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the same Jesus who says this to you. So when I, from the text, say, obey what he commands, I'm asking you to live simply and humbly with our God. And then just watch. Now, I know not a lot of you, I I know journaling is a thing that like Puritans and sailors used to do when the Mayflower was out there, but I'm going to tell you this. It's a wonderful spiritual discipline for you to practice. Even if it's just a couple lines a day. Because in the time when the storm comes, and we're going to see that in just a minute, in the time that the storm comes, you have something that you can look back at and you can see where God's faithfulness happened. You can, you can write these things down and you can say, listen, I have start with what I had. I gave it to Jesus. I obeyed his commands. And here is the result. I've got it written down so I know the next time I do this, I can trust in Christ. And what will happen then is you will also be like the disciples and the people, and you will receive Jesus' blessing. Warren Wiersbe, uh a, a theologian, a, a Bible expositor, has a, a commentary on this section, and I'd like to quote his section here. Um, it's, it's a longish quote, so just don't fall asleep. The Apostle John recorded a sermon on the bread of life that Jesus gave the next day in the synagogue of Capernaum, John 6, 22 and following. So this happened in in the book of John. This happens, and then the very next day he gives the the sermon about being the bread of life. Look it up. That's your homework. You you should. The people were willing to receive the physical bread, but they would not receive the living bread. The Son of God came down from heaven. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 was actually a sermon in action, Jesus is the bread of life, and only he can satisfy the spiritual hunger in man's hearts. The, tra- the tragedy is, men waste their time and money on that which is not bread. And he quotes that from Isaiah 55, 1-7. through 7. You know, People today are making the same mistake, however. Jesus still has a word of compassion to the hungry multitudes. As he says to them, you need not go away and to his church, give them something to eat. How easy is it for us to send people away, to make excuses, to plead a lack of resources? Jesus asks that we give him all that we have and let him use it as he sees fit. And here's his closing statement that I really want you to pay attention to. A hungry world is feeding on empty substitutes while we deprive them of the bread of life. And that is a picture of Jesus from the rocks and thorns. But this view of Jesus from the rocks of thorns is actually a picture of compassion to the weak, because Jesus doesn't turn them away, he doesn't make them feel bad. Instead, he provides for their needs. Now we're close, so we're going to power through. You ready? A view from the field. Fourteen twenty-two through thirty-two. This view from the field is again a famous section of scripture. We'll read through it. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, he did this because the crowd wanted to take him by force and make him king. He knew his disciples, and if you have read the Gospels, you know him too, and Peter would have been like, yes! And they would have grabbed him and lifted him up on his shoulders, and they would have marched into Jerusalem, and it wouldn't have been the way it was supposed to be, right? So Jesus, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, he was like, "Nope, get into the boat, guys, and I'm going to send the people away. So immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, go out before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, so he was up there for a while, and they were out in the boat for this whole time. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat, this time, was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, I want you to remember, who's in the boat right now? Milk-toast men? No. Fishermen? They were out on this lake all the time? They were very used to rowing. You can do all the math. Google this if you want to or look up commentaries. They were about halfway through, they think, because of the time frame. That's all hearsay or whatever. But they were, they have been paddling for a long time and they were far out on the water, okay? And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, you have to picture this in your mind. It's night. It's not like here in America. There's no lights. It's dark. They are getting busted up by the waves and the wind. They are probably tired. They're men, just like us, right? So they're probably unhappy, both with the situation and with each other. Just men, put yourself in the situation with 11 other guys out in the middle of the night rowing continuously. How would you act? Okay, That's how they're acting, all right? And so they're there, and at the end, in the middle of the night, then Jesus comes out walking to them on the water. But when the disciples saw them, him walking on the sea, they were terrified, They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, now, how long were they terrified for? Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. In the Greek, this is the same word for I am. It's the same word that Jesus is using to describe God the Father, right? I am. Just tell them I am sent you. Does this make sense? I am. So there's theological meaning here. Do not be afraid. Why? Because it is I. It's Jesus. So don't be afraid. And Peter answered him. I love Peter, man. Look, if it is, Lord, if it is you, so I'm still going to doubt, right? If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And Peter still denied him three times while he was being persecuted before the crucifixion. Take heed lest you fall. There is none among us who should be too prideful in our walk with Christ. So on the water, he comes to Jesus, but when he saw the wind, and again, whole sermon, right? Keep your eyes on Jesus and don't look at other stuff. Great sermon, not today's sermon. He saw the wind, he was afraid, he began to sink. When did he cry out? As soon as he began to sink, Lord save me. And what did Jesus do? Jesus immediately, he didn't wait, he knew it was the time to act. Jesus did what? He reached out and took hold of him. He could have just said, Stand up, Peter. I mean, this is the same God who spoke creation into existence by his word. He heals people with his word. He raises the dead with a word. Could he not steal Peter from sinking by a word? But Jesus does something even more in his time of need. He actually takes hold of him and says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Here's a picture from the field. The fact of the matter is when we are in the field and we have a right picture, a correct picture of Jesus, we can live fearlessly. And so this is going to be a picture of care for his followers. So we're going to run through these quick, these five points, but here they are. The first is this. Jesus is sovereign over you. Jesus sent them into the boat. Jesus knew there was going to be a storm and he sent them into the boat anyway. Jesus knew where they would be when he would go to them. See, the fact of the matter is, is even when we're in the will of God, storms are going to come. And so if you're coming out of a storm, and, and, and maybe you're wondering when the next one's going to come, or if you haven't been in a storm yet, or, or maybe you're in the middle of a storm right now, and you're thinking, God, why are you doing this? Or I'm reminded of Job, who in his heart, I'm sure, to some degree, did question God. And as we see in the text, he gets there also. The fact of the matter is we can be directly in God's will and still storms will come. But also the fact of the matter is those disciples were safer in the boat in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, than they would have been being disobedient to Jesus. And in our lives, we have to understand there's two kinds of storms. There's storms of correction and storms of perfection. Perfection. Second thing is this, we see that Jesus is interceding for you. It says that Jesus was praying. I would assume Jesus was praying about a lot of things. I'm sure one of those things was them. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is a priest forever. And so as we go through today's storms, whether here in the church as a whole, as a people who are suffering, or whether it's individually, understand that you have a high priest who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding on your behalf right now. Yes, that's a good spot for an amen. Some people are starting to yawn. I'll move it faster. Here we go. Third, Jesus is present with you. I want you need to Jesus came to them, absolutely. When did he come to them? In the fourth watch of the night. Listen, if you're here this morning or if you know somebody, this is, you can fast forward the sermon and give them this part. This is for them. Are you ready? Do you feel abandoned or hopeless or scared or weak? Do you feel as if you're in the middle of the storm and it's the third and a half watch of the night and brother or sister Hold fast. Because in the middle of the storm, as the waters are raging, the very thing which they feared, the water, Jesus is used as a staircase to approach them. Isaiah 43.2 When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Think of our patriarchs in the faith. All of them, all of them, all of them went through some kind of a storm, and Jesus came to them at the very moment it was most necessary. So why did Jesus walk on the water? Because it was the very thing that they feared, and so he showed that he could conquer that fear. But the second thing is, why did they not recognize him? Because they weren't looking for him to come. They weren't expecting him to come. And so, brother and sister in Christ, Jesus is present with you. Are you looking for him? Next, Jesus is strength in you. He helps them to grow. That was the whole point of the storm. Remember, he was with them in the first storm, chapter 8, and he calmed it all. And they said, what man is this? This storm, he walks to them and lets them suffer for a little while without him knowing one day he would have to leave them, and they would have to face storms by themselves. And so this is the whole point of allowing them to grow. He says, first, I'm going to be with you in the storm right next to you so that you don't have to fear at all. Next, I'm going to send you out a little bit in the storm, and I'm going to come to you. And then thirdly, he's going to say, don't worry, I'm going. But where I'm going, eventually you're going to come, and I'm going to send my spirit to be with you. The whole point of this is their growth. And the whole point of this is for them to take real steps of faith that actually require growth. You know, I think so often we kind of beat Peter up, but he's the only one that got out of the boat. He's the only one who had a real step of faith. And then later, after he denied Christ and was brought back into the fold, I have to think that as he thought back to this area, what caused his sinking? When did he cry out? His cause to sinking was not looking at Christ. He thought, never again will I not look at Christ. And what caused him to cry out? Knowing that he was sinking. And who did he cry out to? Christ. And after the denial, when he was brought back in, I think this probably is what helped drive him farther and farther in his ministry. Jesus is strength in you. What does he do to Peter when he cries out? He reaches out to him. He will reach out to you as well. And then lastly... To finish up, Jesus is peace around you. They walked to the boat together. And when Jesus was in the boat, the storm ceased. Not only does Jesus call you to follow him, he causes you to continue to follow him and allows you to finish well. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The fact of the matter is when we have a correct view of Jesus, we can live fearlessly. So that brings me to my final closing. That could also have been a good place for an amen. This is the picture of worship. When your viewfinder is right, the picture of worship we can find in the last verse that we'll cover for today. I think it's the last verse of the chapter. I, sorry. Let us fall at the feet of the one who saves the perishing and feast at the table with the one who satisfies the hungry. I got ahead of myself. That's it. So I want to ask you, what does your worship say about Jesus. When you worship Jesus, does your worship say that he is the one who comes to you, that he is the living son of God, that he is the one who walks on the water and causes you to walk through water as well? When you worship Jesus and people see you worshiping Jesus, do they say there's a person that really, truly believes that God has saved them, redeemed them, made them new, and that they will one day inherit the kingdom of glory? What does your worship say about Jesus? Does it say that he has conquered death and sin and hell on your behalf? What does your view of Jesus say about your worship, and what does your worship of Jesus say about your view of him? Let's pray. O most glorious Jesus, grant us, we ask, to meditate upon your sweet and perfect example, that we might be given a clear view of who you are, so as to worship you properly as you deserve. Let us learn from you to be meek and lowly in heart, calm in mind, prudent in action, watchful in prayer, devout in meditation, prompt in obedience, and easily led by the good way that you have provided. It is you that we long for, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen.